3CR would like to acknowledge that we broadcast in the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to Elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We acknowledge sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning and welcome to 3CR Breakfast. Uh, today is is uh, Monday the 22nd, sun, um, sunny today, slight chance of showers late, uh, with winds northerly increasing to 30, a top of 16 today, um, and tomorrow partly cloudy with a 95% chance of rain, most likely in the afternoon and evening, and a top of 14 tomorrow and a low of 10. And that's Melbourne's weather. How nice. are you? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, pretty good for a Monday morning. Yeah. Um, you raring to go today? Oh, yeah. Yes. I, uh, it's, it's, it's strange because we're sort of towards the tail end of, uh, of winter, you know, with August about to come and then we're in spring. You know, I, just, I remember winter came early this year, it seems like, but uh, hopefully it doesn't last into, you know, October. Um, it's been bitterly cold, colder than normal. I've definitely I not been prepared for this. Yeah. <laughs> I, I kind of just thought, Winter was going to be a couple of months, and then we were going to be back to the Australia I was sold. Yeah, yeah, no, keep uh, keep the faith. Uh, if you've lived in Queensland, it'll be different. That's why That's a lot of New Zealanders live up there. It's Ooh. always nice and twenty up there, <laughs> yeah, Gold Coast. Um, but today on the show, we've got a pretty jam-packed show. Um, we're going to be hearing from Jack Verdens talking about public housing. He works for Friends of Public Housing, um, and you know it's all about uh, zero public housing being developed in Victoria. And at 7:30, we'll be talking to Donna Bennett, who's the CEO of Hope Street, which is a youth homelessness, um, uh, I guess, uh, mission. It's a, it's a business. W- business. <laughs> it's a, it's an organisation which uh, specialises in uh, youth hom- homelessness services around Melbourne. And then at 7.45? At 7.45 we've got Tamara Tobakovic um, and Tamara's going to be talking to us about the EU asylum politics and decision making. So we're going to be speaking on the show about Captain Corella Rocchetti, if you're familiar with her story. So she's a captain, a sea captain, um, who has been arrested in Italy for people smuggling when she docked in Italy with refugees on the boat. Mm. Um, Not knowing exactly the full story in terms of the the, uh, officials who charged her. She could have picked them up at sea, but all of a sudden she's being charged. Well, we'll talk about her case um, in more detail Mm. at 7, at 8 o'clock, but we have Tamara on first to kind of give us um, a bit more information about the EU decision-making and politics and and what's happened in the last couple of years, which has really tightened all these laws up and and the the law particularly facing um, Carola Rocchetti. So we'll be speaking at 8 o'clock to Ian Rintoul from the Refugee Action Coalition in Sydney. Um, and Ian's going to talk to us exactly 
about what happened to Carilla Ricchetti. Um, so, yeah, we've got half an hour of some information about the EU. And then what have we got at 8.15? At 8.15, we will be talking to Sue McKinnon, who is from the Environment Group King Lake Friends of the Forest, um, and they are passionately arguing with Vic Forest to stop logging in Extens Road, King Lake, for the safety of the community. We know that um, it's been 10 years now since the uh, Black Saturday bushfires happened in February, um, February 7th, 2009, and so there's been a community protest um, after Vic Forest ignored concerns raised by the community uh, in regards to logging forest up there. Um, so yeah, we'll be talking to her about that, and and on the music, mm. we've got we've got some great music for today as well, all from Melbourne um, and Australian bands, um, and their EPs. Was it Dirty Cash we listened to last week? From last week, we listened to a whole lot. Yeah, stuff, yeah, it's fantastic. But yeah, we've got we've got um, some good bands coming up, so. Whenever you're ready, Dean, I reckon we should play a track. Yeah, yeah, I'm um, not sure whether you would have seen it, but I, I was watching the news last night and the ABC had a little special report on, I don't know how to say it, is it Huawei, the the mobile phone company, those mobile oh. phones, H-U-A-W-E-I from yeah. China. okay. And they were talking about, you know, now they've got, they're the second biggest telecommunications uh service provider so you've got they sold more mobile phones last year Mm. than apple and so we know that there's australia has taken a position on blocking Huawei from their 5g rollout and it's and they were talking about how it's all about um, domestic and national interests um and they were talking about how china have actually said look this is a product that you can buy but in china it's in the national interest that we spy on you through the mobile phone and we collect all your data. So what the the issue with the US and the rest of the Western world is that China have said that to their people. So if you buy a Huawei phone, how do we know what is actually being looked at by the Chinese government through your mobile so phone? So they've been very open about that. They're going to use it as like a surveillance well, as yeah. part of the, the phone. Yeah, yeah. So um, I didn't realise that that was the big deal, but it's... <sighs> It's huge. Like, well, the business itself is huge. It's just made such a. I've seen people with Huawei phones, you know, and I was like, oh, what's that phone? And they go, oh, this is what it is. Mm. And they're outselling Apple. But the controversy is purely around, um, yeah, surveillance and why governments are, are, are sort of being banning the 5G yeah. rollout, especially in Australia, of that mobile phone. It was quite an interesting piece. Um, and there's some good stories here about, you know, uh, the Chinese executives talking about um, why their product is good, but then some of them have got possible extradition to the United States purely based on them promoting a mobile phone. So, mm. yeah, it, it, to, me, really? I, to me, I just sort of thought, oh, this is something that I'd never thought of. You know, like we could be getting spied on by Apple as well. Who knows? You yeah. know, people talk about instances where they're having a conversation with a friend, talking about something, and then all of a sudden an ad comes up which has that the exact has had same to sort me. Of yeah, thing. that has happened to me multiple times. Mm. And mm. my um, my dad still refuses to be on any form of social media because he is convinced um, that it's all the government trying to just 
spy on us. Yeah, they know where we are yeah. all the time. Uh, well, I think on on a on a basic level, that's what it is, and it's got its good and it's got its bad. So if you look, if you think of the positives, it's helping combat certain crimes that people mm. used to get away with. Mm. You know, so somebody's gone and kidnapped somebody and killed somebody mm. and they say, oh, I wasn't there. It's like, oh, sorry. Mm. Your mobile phone says you went you here, exactly there, right. there. Um, whereas, you know. In regards to the apps as well, um, I know that they, they sort of say if the app is free, then you are the product. Yeah, so yeah, if it's a yeah. free app, then they're selling your information. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're going to download anything and it's free, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, who reads who reads the uh, product disclosure statement? No, which exactly. Is like Fifty pages long, and then by yeah. the time you get to point forty six point five, where it says, "Oh, do you agree to let us pass?" It's way. You know, you just want the free app. Yeah. You don't really care about that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I think I'm going to follow this one. Um, a little bit, uh, a bit closer. Closer. I don't, you know, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but when you haven't searched for something over your phone and you've talked about it and then something comes up, it's just like, hmm. Mm. Yeah, it's not too difficult to join the dots. Is yeah. It? <laughs> yeah. So uh, hopefully, Huawei um, can come out and sort of, you know, let us make us all feel safe and make the Australian government and foreign governments feel safe because it's not just Australia; mm. it's all over the world. I mean, I know um, they're trying to get the EU to also ban the sale of these phones mm. and, and the 5G rollout. Yeah, it was. I was trying to find it this morning, but um, maybe we'll link that piece, um, that article on our Monday breakfast page. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So if listeners definitely. can have a take a read of that as well. It's really interesting. And mm. let's go and listen. Should we go for some music for a track before um, we come back with um, Jack Verdens? Yeah, so we're going to play Blues Arcadia, and the album is called Carnival of Fools, and we're going to play a song now called Hear It Now. That was Blues Arcadia album, Carnival of Fools, and that song was called Hear It Now. What did you think of that one, Dean? Oh, it was great. I thought I heard a little bit of a swear word there, so apologies if it was one. But uh, <laughs> Yeah, sorry about that, Monday morning. Uh, yeah. It's um, always good to you know get up and hear a, a cranking song. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and we've got some audio at the moment that we're going to play. Mm-hmm. So recently there was a conference, uh, a Fair Go for Pensioners conference, which was held on the 10th of July 2019. And, you know, they tackled all things um, to do with the elderly. And it was all about looking at uh, more public welfare services, um, which have been privatised and are now costly for the elderly. Jack Verdens, who um, works with, I can't really remember, works in the public housing Victoria space, was one of the people who was there. And in the last 15 to 20 years, he talked about how there's been zero public housing developed. Here he is talking about that issue. 
the second uh, panellist is Jack Burdens. Uh, he comes from the corporate sector, worked in IT as a special technical assistant and later in marketing. He has since become involved with local, local community justice issues and since nine, sorry, 2017 he's worked with Friends of Public Housing Victoria. Welcome, Jack. Thank you. Good morning. Yeah, so I had a good breakfast. I had a good morning too. Pretty good, wasn't it? So I'm looking forward to lunch as well. So uh, great, great, great local catering. Okay, let's get back on the topic. Um, public housing. Uh, in the last 15 to 20 years, there has been zero new public housing developed in Victoria. Which seems to say to me that the only way you can get into a bit of public housing is to be an emergency accommodation request and you've got to wait for someone to move out of the existing housing or die. That's the only way you can get in. How big's the problem? There's eight, there are 82,000 people currently on the public housing waiting list. Last night, 25,000 people were homeless in Victoria. Now, this wasn't always the case, and maybe this also lends a, a sight to the future. Um, in the 1950s, all the way through to 1996, in Australia, we were developing every year 8,000 to 14,000 new public housing dwellings. And that's where we get our current stock from. So the will was there with the government in those days to do, to do, do the right thing. Um, however, we exist, Friends of Public Housing Victoria and other organisations because it's really fallen into a hole. Uh, currently, what's the government doing here in Victoria about public housing? Well, it's actually giving it away. They're currently transferring 14,000 properties from government management to giving it to community housing organisations as the gentleman over there somewhere said earlier on, this is not public housing. They're private organisations with their own corporate targets. So the government is essentially just getting out of the public housing business and it's actually exacerbating the problem by giving away 14,000 properties currently in plan. Um, now, obviously, people will end up living in these properties, but they won't be the most needy. They'll be picked from the middle of the public housing queue um, according to the rules that the uh, community housing organisations operate under. OK. Um, quickly touch on the public housing renewal program. The government came up with a great idea. We've got all these walk-up estates, three storeys high, um, valuable real estate, inner-city um, areas... So they decided they would redevelop these and with an extra 10% of public housing accommodation on it in return for giving the rights to a developer to also develop towers of private apartments. And first three, three um, uh, estates have been announced in terms of redevelopment. We went from about 220 um, developments, uh, sorry, um, dwellings to about 300 odd and it slammed another 700 private 
for sale units on those blocks. So we're actually losing the land that we could possibly be developing new uh, estates on. And not only that, but the new public housing that they were being developed was actually going to be run by community housing organisations, not by the government. Um, our lobbying was very successful there, and it, this is actually almost bizarre that they did it, but about, about three days ago they actually renamed, renamed the Public Housing Redevelopment Program to the Social Housing Redevelopment Program. Because it's no longer going to be public housing. Shock, horror. Okay, so who are these community housing organisations that the um, housing is going to? They have done an absolutely incredible job of siphoning every cent of Commonwealth and um, state government revenue to their own needs. So since 1996 there has been heaps of money going into social housing but it's been going to the community housing organisations. And how does that come, come about? Well, it comes about because these guys have got money, they've got lobbyists, they've set up organisations such as the AHURI, Australian Housing Urban Institute Research. Fancy names, they come out with fancy reports. Reports all come out with a strategy in their favour. They pay universities to do studies for them. They run conferences. There's a conference, if you want to meet all these guys from community housing, they're at a conference in Darwin on August the 27th. And if you've got $1,300, you can pay it at a conference fee. So we're talking about corporates. Now, these are rich guys, and the really scary thing is it's now also been infiltrated by people from the financial services sector. So there's only one, one way that this is all going. Um, just a bit of a, a story about how public, uh, sorry, community housing treat their, treat their people. Uh, lady, this is a true story, lady out in Caroline Springs, living there with her son, two bedroom house, son moves out, they found out about it. Okay, you're not entitled to an empty bedroom and they shifted her from a two bedroom house in Caroline Springs to a boarding house, rooming house in Footscray, studio apartment. Same rent, because it's always a percentage of your income, and no longer can her son or grandchildren come and visit and have a room. No help, and, and not only that, but they also are very well renowned for just kicking people out as well. Um, Hopefully we can talk, talk more, a bit more about this during questions because I haven't got time to do it now. Um, the next big step is, all I have to do is read the lobbying of the community housing groups to know what's going to happen next or what their reports are saying. So they've actually siphoned off all the public housing in the other states other than Victoria. We're the only state with any left. So there's nothing else to gain. So now... Now they're going to get the government to borrow cheap money. Interest rates are down and let's go and build all that public housing. But who's going to run it? I can predict who's going to run it. It'll be these people. So our lobbying, we will get ahead of the game and lobby against that and that's going to be our battle over the next few years. 
And that was Jack Verdon's talking about um, the lack of public housing and he's working with Friends of Public Housing Victoria. I know um, a couple of weeks ago we had Jenny Smith who is from the Council of Homeless Persons and in a moment um, at about 7.30 we'll be talking to Donna Bennett who is the CEO of Hope Street and I guess what they do is all about trying to bring specialist youth homelessness services to growth corridors around Melbourne. Um, so Jack Verdon's then told that conference which was on the 10th of July that there are 82,000 people on the Victorian public housing waiting list and you know the night before he came on 25,000 were homeless yet there's been no new public housing built in Victoria in the past 20 years. The state government has instead transferred public housing dwellings to the control of community housing organisations that generally do not take in those on the public housing waiting list with the most needs. He said um, those 82,000 people, you know, at least in the 60s and 70s, uh, the government had committed to building somewhere between 8,000 to 14,000 homes, um, which meant that it was a priority. But now there is, um, you know, a, a bit of a, a crisis happening since the 1980s. Um, we might go to another quick track before yep. we get uh, Donna Bennett on. This one we're going to play is called, the band is called The Thoughts of Chairman Jim. <laughs> That's right. The album is called The Woodland Hunters. And this one is called Strange Days for a Presbyterian. Presbyterian. It's time now to get to our next guest. I um, we just heard from friends of public housing, Jack Verdens, who was talking really at a conference, um, talking about public housing, and obviously eighty-two thousand people on the Victorian public housing waiting list. A couple of weeks back, we spoke to Jenny Smith, who is the CEO of Council to Homeless Persons, and she was giving us an overview of homelessness in general. And I thought, look, it would be a good opportunity for us to talk to an organisation which is particularly focusing on uh, youth homelessness. Hope Street Youth and Family Services, based in the northern and western regions of Melbourne, is one of the longest established specialist youth homelessness services in Victoria. To find out a little bit more about what they do and who they are in some of their campaigns, we are joined by the Hope Street Youth and Family Services CEO, Donna Bennett. Good morning, Donna. Good morning, Dean. How are you? Very well, thank you. Very well. Um, thanks for joining us on um, 3CR Breakfast. I, um, I think I mentioned that we 
had had a few chats about homelessness in general, but I thought it might be a good idea to give people a bit of an idea about youth homelessness. It sort of, um, you know, just gets put in with the rest of, uh, of uh, homelessness. But can you tell us a little bit about, I guess, what what is the definition of youth, youth homelessness and, and why is it an issue as well? Thank you. Jean, um, youth homelessness, the age group that uh, defines youth homelessness is 16 to 25. Um, and what we find is that uh, many people who experience youth homelessness, young people who experience homelessness, are a very hidden group. That means that they're not readily seen. They don't take themselves to a mainstream service or to a generalist services and say, put their hand up and say that I'm homeless. So we often don't know that they're there. So they're very difficult to count in terms of data, although um, the ABS, the census data that is collected, um, does collect some homelessness data for all homeless people. Um, However, we estimate that homelessness is much higher than what the census data would say, and particularly in local communities and growth corridors, there's quite a high level of homelessness that people aren't aware of. What happens is young people tend to couch surf a lot. Um, mm. Or if they're, if they're lucky enough to stay in a car, they might sleep in a car. Um, but generally speaking, it's couch surfing or staying at uh, businesses that are open 24 hours a day overnight where it's lit, such as a McDonald's. Mm. Um, and then they'll find somewhere to crash the next day to try and get some sleep. And, and I think you, you mentioned you know, the extent of the problem is hidden by the fact that most homeless people don't sleep rough on the streets. What sort of problems do do youth, um, you know, the youth face out there in regards to their their problems? Obviously the inability to shower often, but what are some of the other problems? Well, that's right, Dean. I mean, if you can imagine, let's say, for example, you're fortunate enough to sleep in a car. You don't have anywhere to shower. You don't have a toilet. You don't have a kitchen, so you can't actually go and buy yourself any groceries because you don't have a fridge to put the groceries in. You don't have anywhere that you can cook. Um, you sleeping in the car, so you, your hygiene uh, becomes um, affected, um, which then in turn can affect young people's self-esteem and confidence. Then they, in turn, they are more reluctant to go to services because they feel that they're not presenting themselves at their best. It also tends to affect their ability to go to school. They disengage with school because their friends are talking about mum this, dad that, you know, at home, and they don't they, they don't have that. So they feel very disconnected mm. um, and isolated. So they become more disconnected and more isolated because they don't want they don't want to talk about their situation. Pardon me. So, um, so they're the issues. So they, they tend to become more isolated. Their diet is highly affected. And at that age, young people need to have a balanced diet. At that age, it's particularly important for them to have good sleep. Mm. And of course, like all of us, like all of us, we need to feel that we're in a safe space. And, and often, obviously, you know, you, you don't, nobody wants to be at risk of infectious diseases as well. Um, and, and I read that, you know, on Census Night in 2016, and I think you just mentioned earlier, young people, it says, make up 24% of the homeless population, but it's probably higher than that. 
Um, That's right. And then you have your organisation, which provide, I guess, strategically targeted and holistic programs for for young people, including young families. Why do you believe homelessness exists in Australia or in Victoria in general? Well, I think the very simple answer to that is a very simple answer to that. It's simply that there is not enough affordable housing and and housing that has security of tenure. Mm. So young people, like anyone else, young people leave home due to sustained levels of family violence. It's the primary reason why young people leave home. Um, Due to poverty, sometimes it's that the family cannot feed them, so so the older child is asked to leave. Um, Due to um, drug and alcohol issues related to the family. Mental health issues. The very sad thing about this is that homelessness is a traumatic experience in itself Mm. and can perpetuate a young person's mental health. So it can lead a young person to further depression, to feeling, um, to having suicidal ideations. So it's actually a traumatic experience um, for a young person themselves. So yes, it's, it's, it's not a, it's a very sad situation. So other causes are things like lack of income. So young people are on the lowest form of Centrelink income. Yeah. It's just over $200 a week. Now, rents in most areas of Melbourne, there's, you could, you'd be lucky to find somewhere for $200 a week rent, and then that would leave a young person with nothing to live on. So I think the debate that's going on at the moment about New Start is way overdue, and, uh, and definitely we need to look at young people's incomes. That's the other factor. So lack of affordable, secure housing, incomes are too low, youth unemployment, mm-hmm. and there's not enough programs, specialist youth housing programs for young people in the, in the homelessness sector either or the housing sector. By that, what I'm talking about, and this is what Hope Street specialises in, we specialise in providing um, uh, youth-focused services that are designed, carefully designed, to meet the needs of young people. So we have programs where we have units, where young people are uh, in those units, it's a cluster of units, but staff are on site seven days a week. And our staff are trained to engage with those young people, to work with them on goals, to keep them motivated, to get them back into school, to get them looking for jobs, to get them reconnected with their families, that's what they want to do. Mm. Um, to be connected to their local community. So, but you, unlike adult services where you can tend to, as an adult, our brains have developed enough where we are able to establish those relationships ourselves. And if we know we need to go to the doctor, we just make an appointment to go to the doctor. Young people aren't at that stage yet in their life. They're still learning and growing and developing the ability to do those types of things. And this is where youth services are different from adult services and we need to fund youth services. They may cost a bit more initially, but in the long term, they work. They divert young people from long-term homelessness and they enable young people to get back into school, to get into employment, to rebuild their connections with their local communities. And that's what's hope. 
that that is what Hope Street is about. And yeah, I'd read somewhere too. I think you're talking about New Start and and um, work that one fifth of young workers, you know, have their wages stolen by the employer. So being able to to keep a lookout for that means that you do need some support. And I, I understand that you're currently right. uh, constructing a, a purpose-designed youth refuge in the city of Melbourne, and you've also got a campaign called the First Response Youth Service yes, in Whittlesea. That's right. That's right. So we've, we're really fortunate that with the last term of the Victorian government, um, as a recommendation that came out of the Royal Commission into Family Violence, that we were funded to um, build a purpose-designed youth refuge in the growth corridor of Melton. Um, and we hope that's under construction at the moment and we hope to be in there by the end of the year. Meanwhile, um, the state government has also provided the operational funding for us to deliver services to young people in that growth corridor uh, because the nearest service crisis, supported crisis accommodation service for young people uh, 40 kilometres away. Mm. Um, we are, that's called our Hope Street First Response Model because it is about being a first response to young people who are homeless. So it's, a, it's about having a service that operates 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It combines with a, a mobile outreach service a specialist youth mobile outreach service that is funded in partnership with the Ian Potter Foundation for four years and we're in our second year. And that enables our staff to be able to go out to, to where young people are in the community experiencing homelessness and provide them with one-to-one support. Now, and a purpose-built 13-bedroom crisis accommodation centre, which is critical, obviously, talking about, you know, um, youth homelessness and, and, and the lack of public housing as well. Yes, that's right. So we need to have places... When, when we capture young people who are homeless, which is very important because we need to be able to do that so that they, we can start to bring back some stability in their life. We can start to get them back to school reconnected with their community, with their family. So being able to capture young people who are homeless and hold them in a place like a youth refuge where it's got staff 24 hours a day and we're able to provide them with a balanced diet, with routine, with sleep, all of those types of things, a safe space, that's important to help young people stabilise then they're able to think about what is their next step, what do they want to do. Mm. That's criti- critical if we want to stop young people from being on a revolving door situation in the homelessness service system. We don't want that. We want young people to be able to move through their experience of homelessness. And they won't, I know it feels at the time for a young person, they feel like their life is not going to change. It will change. Homelessness is one part of their life. We know many, many, many young people who move through into their adulthood and they do not um, experience, they're not in homelessness. So we know that we can divert young people from homelessness quite successfully long term. We're wanting to establish the same type of model in the city of Whittlesea. And Dean, our focus is on growth corridors because growth corridors are actually highly under-resourced in terms of these types of services. So if you look at, say, a nine-kilometre radius from the CBD of Melbourne, 
there are, most of the metropolitan youth refuges are within that nine kilometre radius. Now, Melbourne is a sprawling city. Mm. It is continually growing, particularly in the major growth corridors. That's Hope Street's focus. Our focus is to get out, establish these services in those growth corridors, work in partnership with the local governments in those areas, work in partnership with the local businesses and corporations in those areas, as well as corporations in the wider community, as well as work in partnership with um, key philanthropic organisations to, to enable this to occur, to build these types of centres for young people. And, and, and that's and, what we want to do in, in Whittlesea, yes. And uh, we could talk about this all morning. I know it's not an issue that, yes. that yeah. So I guess uh, the, just to, to summarise before we get to our next guest, uh, you know, what, what you're trying to do is build solid and sustainable outcomes to meet the needs of young people um, who are at risk of experiencing homelessness. Just quickly, how can people help you in the process of raising capital funds required to build the first response service? Well, I've put a call out there to any companies who might be interested in donating materials. We had a fantastic response from companies. 32 companies have either fully donated or heavily discounted materials for the build of our refuge in the city of Melton. Um, I put a call out there to people to look at our website, www.hopestreet.org, um, and make a, a, a donation uh, pledge. Um, if you're talking to any of your local members of Parliament or anyone else, please put a plug in for Hope Street and the importance of having this type of service in the um, city of Whittlesea, which is where we're working with the local community and the, and the um, local government out in the city of Whittlesea to build our next centre. Donna, thank you very much. And it's uh, hopest.org is the website. We really appreciate the work that um, you're doing and I guess your mission to bring specialist youth homelessness services to these growth corridors around Melbourne. Thank you for joining us on 3CR Breakfast. Thank you, Dan. It's been a pleasure and thank you to your listeners. And that was Donna Bennett from Hope Street. I'm Mo Louie, and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM Radical Radio on digital and streaming live on 3cr.org.au. So now we'll be speaking um, to Tamara Tobakovic, and we're going to be talking a bit about the EU and the asylum politics and decision-making that, that happens um, in the EU at the moment and what has been happening since about 2015. So later on in the show, as I said before, we're going to be speaking about the story of Captain Corella Rocchetti. But her story is a much bigger part of a crisis. Um, so I'd like to get a better idea about the events that have led up to these tightening of laws in the EU. 
and why somebody like Captain Carola Ricchetti is facing jail time. So to kick off this discussion, we've got Tamara Tabakovic, a PhD researcher in the School of Social and Political Sciences at the University of Melbourne, and she's going to join us today. So hi, Tamara. Hi. How are you? Good. How are you? Yeah, I'm great, thanks. Good. So I'd like to start our conversation today with just speaking a little bit about the EU's response to the 2015 refugee crisis, in yeah. in little quotation marks, crisis. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, can um, you talk to us a bit about that? Yeah, so the crisis itself, and this is why it's often put into quotation marks, I think is because it was caused by two similar but kind of separate things. So first off, there was a huge number of refugees and migrants entering the EU. I mean, this increase had been growing since about 2011 with the Arab Spring in North African countries, as well as the conflict in Syria. But in 2015, the EU countries, Greece and Italy, saw a massive inflow, over 1.2 million, I think is the, is the approximate statistic. Now, at the same time as the number of refugees were entering, the EU was also suffering a major crisis in its own asylum policies. Um, so the EU has already a common European asylum system, which is established in about the late 1990s. Um, and this system essentially covers the entire asylum pre- procedure, from registration to the designation of responsibility to the procedures, qualification, and the reception process. However, this common European asylum system was essentially failing at this point because member states were not implementing it correctly. The major problem at the time was the designation of responsibility. Now, I don't know if you or the listeners have heard of the Dublin regulation, um, but it's essentially the mechanism that allocates responsibility in the EU to the member state that should be processing the asylum seeker. Mm. And the main principle, the main rule of this mechanism is the country in which the asylum seeker first enters. Now, of course, asylum seekers at the time, the refugees, migrants, were coming from North Africa and the Middle East, and the main entry point was Italy and Greece, and of course Spain to a lesser extent, and um, Bulgaria. So, of course, Italy and Greece were then primarily responsible for these 1.2 million refugees under EU and um, their own national laws because they had implemented these. And this is really what was the crisis in 2015 because the amount of asylum seekers in these two countries was completely unsustainable. Mm. I mean, Greece especially was facing a financial crisis at the time, um, Italy to a lesser extent, but these two countries were simply unable to process the number of asylum seekers that they were responsible for. So, of course, you know, these asylum seekers have entered through these two countries. But, I mean, these asylum seekers also perhaps don't want to stay in Italy and Greece because of these, you know, financial, you know, reasons. They want to go to Germany or they want to go to Sweden. They want to go to the UK. They want to go to countries where they speak the language, where they've learnt the language, where they have family. So this, of course, then led to, you know, a massive movement of refugees through the Western Balkan route, entering through Hungary, again, through Austria, then on the way to Germany. Yeah. And so, um, so the EU does play a role in the decisions that the member states make around their refugee policy. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. So the way it works in the EU is that there are two regulations and three directives. I won't get into too much of the technicalities, Mm -hmm. but essentially what that means is that the EU sets the standards and the rules, and what the member states then have to do is 
change or introduce new laws that match those rules and standards. So, right. for example, there are certain standards for reception centres and these member states or qualification processes and these member states then have to change or implement new rules that match these. Mm. And when this was happening in 2015, were, were countries like Italy um, and Greece and the countries that, that were seeing the huge, the huge income of um, refugees, were they changing their own policies at the time? Or did they start? Did, they, did the motions come no. into play? So I think the issue was mostly that they hadn't implemented the rules up to date. Right. So Greece actually had its own asylum crisis in about 2010, 2011, because it hadn't implemented the rules and standards that were necessary. And actually, there was the European Court of Human Rights and the European um, Human, uh, the ECJ, sorry. Um, they had a court ruling saying that you cannot return refugees to Greece anymore. So under the Dublin system, if an asylum ticket had entered through Greece and then went to Germany, Germany could then register them again and go, hang on, you entered through Greece. The country that's responsible is Greece, so we're going to send you back to Greece. But because of the really bad standards that were in Greece, they were no longer able to send these refugees back because of fear that they would have their human rights undermined or even sent back you know, to countries wow. of origin where they, where they would face persecution. So mm. Greece had a pretty bad system before the 2015 refugee crisis in quotations. Mm. Um, Italy was not as bad. There were some concerns, um, but they didn't necessarily, that court ruling didn't suspend for Italy. Um, but there were um, some concerns from, you know, human rights organizations and NGOs. Mm. Um, but the main issue for Italy was that they weren't registering people right. who were entering because that way they could then avoid being responsible. Because if the person entered through Italy, went to France, for example, France, you know, tries to find where they registered their entry and there is no registration. They can't just... They can't I send mean, them back I mean, they all there. know they came through Italy. Mm. You know, I mean, there was an understanding. But, I mean, without the hard documents, Italy could just say, well, I don't know what you're talking about. Mm. You know, they didn't come through here. So I think that was, yeah, I guess the main issue. But I think, yeah, in terms of changing, not so much. That really started actually more in 2016 with the EU member states adopting mm. more restrictive um, asylum policies. So they were kind of responding late to what was happening in 2015, in 2016? Well, yeah, the reason why I think these member states adopted or changed their policies is because the EU really failed to respond to the crisis. And I, I mean, when I say fail, I don't want to put the blame on the EU because EU decision-making consists of the European Commission, the European Parliament, and 28 member states. Yeah. And these 28 member states have vastly different, you know, national interests. So it's very, very difficult yeah. to come to some sort of common agreement. So the EU tried to implement something called the relocation schemes, which is um, when an asylum seeker entered through Italy or Greece, they would be registered, they would be screened for security reasons, and then they would be relocated to another EU country that had perhaps less migrants at the time or were in a better, you know, economic position to accept these um, migrants and refugees. Um, mm. Unfortunately, the relocation was really slow. I think within the first year, only 1,000 of 160,000 were relocated. Um, eventually got better. I think currently it's about 37,000 that have been relocated. I mean, the scheme ended within two years, so it's no longer, you know, um, in force, 
But, um, yeah, over the two years, it was heavily criticized for its failure to actually you know, be effective in any way on these two front lines in the state. And, I mean, the number 160,000 that was selected is completely arbitrary when you have 1.2 million refugees mm-hmm. coming in. So even from the beginning, the, the mechanism was questioned by other you know, actors. Mm. And, and as I said, we're going to be speaking about the case of Captain Corella Rocchetti today, w- which... Mm-hmm. Um, which really will focus on this, the laws of the sea and, and, and what's happening there. I mean, in 2015, a million people crossed the sea, right? Mm. So do we see these laws almost like completely conflicting with, with refugees' lives? And, and have we seen any change within the international laws of the sea? I can't answer the question about the international laws, but... I, I can say that these these policies that are being adopted by member states are ineffective completely. I mean, you still have thousands of people dying at sea. I mean, this is not something that has simply just you know gone away with the adoption of really restrictive um, asylum policies. I mean, it's estimated that 2.275 thousand refugees disappeared or died um, wow. in 2018, and that's actually increased. The ratio has increased. Um, since the crisis. So I don't think that has necessarily helped. I think it's actually just created a really toxic climate. I mean, it's not just in Italy. I mean, Hungary has adopted, you know, these quite draconian policies, building fences with Serbia, and you have refugees stranded, um, you know, in these transit zones. Like, essentially, there's no legal status in these zones. They're just kept there indefinitely. And I mean, I think it was a few months ago, there were reports from the UN saying that Hungary was no longer feeding the people in these transit zones. And the Hungarian government essentially said, well, they haven't received refugee status, so why should we then spend money on them? I mean, and then also this is happening in Germany. Like, this isn't, like, we shouldn't forget this isn't just countries, you know, in Eastern Europe or Southern Europe. I mean, these ideal north, northern states are also implementing these transit zones where they keep refugees and migrants indefinitely and just wait for them to leave on their own accord or force them out. They, they pay them to leave, essentially. Wow. Um, I think Italy is perhaps right, you know, in the front line now because, in the limelight, because of these quite restrictive policies, but also because, I mean, you have Salvini tweeting about them. I mean, you yes. have your interior minister saying, you know, we close our ports, we don't care about these people. Yeah, um, he's very vocal on Twitter about his own opinions regarding refugees, right? Absolutely. This is the Italian, they- this is the Italian deputy um, president, right? Yeah, this yeah. is Interior Minister as well. So he's he's coming out, and this is because they've built their political mandate on this. I mean, it's the same with Victor Orban. Mm. I mean, his popularity really comes from his quite restrictive approach and stopping migration, stopping refugees. We don't want them. And this is and a so serious this- trend in politics everywhere at the moment, Absolutely. and in Australia as well. Yeah, I think, I mean, when I was doing my interviews, so I've done several interviews with EU officials and national ministers, and they're often, you know, comparing, either, you know, in a critical way, saying, like, what is happening to Europe, we're adopting the Australian approach, or when I've interviewed, you know, members of the parliament in these European, Eastern European countries, and they've said, you know, we want to adopt the Australian approach. It has been effective. Wow. And, you know, this is this is actually something that's quite distressing to think that, you know, the Australian model is becoming you know, something that's being adopted by European countries as well and it's spreading across the world. You know, we're no longer being criticised. We're just, we're being applauded for, for, you know, what we're doing. And I think that's quite, quite horrible. And I think Italy is a really horrible case, especially because, I mean, 
there are people still dying and they have these agreements with Libya um, mm. where they're, you know, funding and training Libyan border and coast guards to, you know, rescue, I put that in quotation marks, rescue these refugees and migrants who leave the Libyan coast. And then they put them in detention centres. And, I mean, one was bombed two weeks ago. So Libya, Libya is in the middle of a civil war. Yeah. You know, this is not a safe third country. This is not anything for these for these migrants. I mean, they're tortured. They're yeah. exploited. I mean, how how is this, you know, being accepted by other EU countries or even the EU itself? I mean, this is quite terrible. Mm. And I think after um, that bombing that you were just speaking about in Libya, the EU, the uh, sorry, the UN predicted that thousands thousands more asylum seekers are going to be attempting to to cross from Libya, yeah, and that this it will be a sea of blood without rescue boats. Absolutely, and this is things that I think is quite concerning is that. Migration is a, is a I, I don't want to call it a challenge, but a structural challenge. It's a structural issue. People will always move. Exactly. You know, people have always moved. And, you know, you can't just ignore it. You can't just stop it. It's impossible to stop migration. People who put themselves on these boats are desperate. Mm. And they're not going to stop. And, yes, exactly, that's what will happen. Unless you have safe and legal routes into the EU, unless you have, you know, perhaps like humanitarian visas to enter the EU, safe passage, these people will keep trying to cross. Mm. They will keep trying to come into the EU for a better life. Yeah. And, I mean, it's already been called the Mediterranean Cemetery, but absolutely, I agree with this UN yes, assessment of it. You know, more and more will... Oh, I think we may have um, lost Tamara briefly there. Hello? Oh, you're back. Okay, sorry about that. No, no, that's all right. So I think we just cut you off mid-sentence. Um, thank you so much, so, so much, Tamara, for talking to us today. And I'd love to have you back on the show and um, speak in more detail also regarding what the EU are up to with their their law and their regulations around refugee policies. Absolutely. That would be fantastic. I'd be very happy to talk about this exciting, although very Story again. Yeah, 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 exactly. Thank you so much for joining us, Tamara. Thanks, Thank Tamara. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. No worries. Have a good day. You too. Bye. Bye. And that was Tamara Tabakovic, a PhD researcher in the School of Social and Political Sciences at the University of Melbourne. And um, Tamara's research focuses on EU asylum politics and decision making. And now we've got Ian Rintel from the Refugee Action Coalition in Sydney. So we're going to be speaking to um, Ian Rintel about the Carola Rochetti case and exactly what's happened to her. This is the captain and um, of the Sea Watch in the EU at the moment and currently facing jail time. A rebel without a choice, so to speak. Yes, exactly. So, Ian, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, good morning. Yeah, good morning. No worries. And um, I just kind of let's ask the broad question. So, who is Carola Rocchetti? Uh, well, uh, Carola Rocchetti is actually a, a German national, but uh, and, and is on the you know the Sea Watch, as you said in the introduction. It's actually run by a, a German NGO, but it's a rescue ship in the Mediterranean. One of the very few that are left. I don't know exactly how many are left, but uh, because of the, the um, actions of the EU to re, you know to restrict those further and further, there's only a handful of rescue ships. Uh, that uh, are still plying the Mediterranean. Uh, Carola and her boat Sea Watch actually picked up 
um, rescued uh, asylum seekers uh, who were coming from you know from Libya, trying to make their way across the Mediterranean, um, and then she tried to get them to Lampedusa, to Italy. Uh, there was a decree by Salvini, by the government, the Italian government, uh, that excluded the use of uh, port, ports. Uh, two uh, you know rescue ships, and she ended up actually running the the naval blockade to bring mm-hmm. the asylum seekers uh, into Italy. So she rescued a dinghy with how many asylum seekers were on the dinghy? I think it was forty two. Uh, yeah, but it's forty one, forty two, something like that. Yeah. And just off the coast of Libya, and so then after that, did she have many choices as to where she was gonna where she was gonna try and dock the boat? Do you know? Not, not really. Um, and the situation for many of the boats is that uh, you know, people who they, who they rescue need, you know, urgent need urgent attention. Uh, the attitude of um, Italy has been to deny rescue, deny the, their ports to rescue ships in an attempt to force the ships to other places. So, you know, your listeners, you might, may know that a lot of the ships have ended up going to going to Spain uh, because they're they're held at sea. They can't get to the nearest port. Um, she wasn't prepared to do that. The situation with the people on her boat uh, deteriorated. Uh, she said there really wasn't any alternative other than to go, you know, to Italy. Although a third boat, there were two two boats which actually ran the you know the blockade in Italy. A third boat ended up um, as a result of you know, Salvini's decree uh, taking uh, their ship to Malta. Mm. So from the time Captain Corella had picked up and her crew had picked up the refugees, I think that was on the 12th of June, and then she made her way to uh, Lampedusa, and on the 26th of June, that's when they ended up docking. So, so do you know, what was the atmosphere like on the boat? I mean, she's rescuing these refugees. They're going to be in, I mean, I can only imagine... The, their mental their mental health at this point and then to be on a boat for weeks not knowing what's going to happen and and like you said she she felt she had no alternative she had even though she knew she would be investigated mm-hmm. she knew that there was no other decision than to go and dock uh, well, the, well, the situation had deteriorated. I, mean, I don't know all the details about the medical circumstances of, of uh, everyone, um, but it's certainly the case that there have been, you know, p- pleas and requests, you know, for medical assistance for the people who were, you know, on, <clears throat> you know, on the sea watch and things simply had deteriorated. I think the other thing people need to understand is that there's no guarantee. If people go to Malta or go to Spain, there's no guarantee they're going to be, you know, <clears throat> they're going to dock there. But there's usually a complicated arrangements of uh, negotiations between various EU governments before you know one or other country will actually you know accept <clears throat> accept the ship. So for her situation uh, was getting you know worse and worse uh, as far as the people who on, you know, on her boat was concerned. And Italy was the uh, the closest uh, the closest port. Um, international law said uh, you know she should be able to take those people who needed help to the closest port to get that help, but. Um, Salvini's decree had uh, closed the port of the rescue ships. And Ian, I think uh, Matteo Salvini called the incident a criminal act, called it an act of war. I know uh, Captain Corella Ricchetti has divided opinion. What's the mood like over there in Italy? You know, is she a heroine or is she a villain? 
Um, well, I suppose it depends on which side of the uh, the, the <laughs> argument, the discussion you're you're on. I mean, yeah. Salvini is uh, the the rhetoric that comes out of Salvini is very Trump-like, uh, very you know Dutton-like, probably a bit you know slightly worse than. Yeah, than Dutton. Um, and, uh, so, you know, he actually called people who were running the blockade, you know, jackals. Um, and he said he called the, the act of bringing people who needed help, asylum seekers, you know, an act of, an act of war. Um, but there's no question there are people in Italy itself, uh, who, who are very much on the, on the side of asylum seekers and against, uh, you know, against Slovenia. And while the biggest demonstrations, uh, for Carola took place in uh, Germany, there were protests in, uh, in Italy. The fact is on, you know, on the ground, uh, not that you know people don't share, you know, Salvini's uh, disgraceful rhetoric. Yeah, and I think that she had quite a crowd waiting for her when she was escorted off the boat. When by the time the boat had docked, she was escorted off by Italian police, and I think there was. It's safe to say she had a couple of hundred people there waiting while she got off. Yeah, no, that's that's right. And there were there was you know, there was a big crowd, you know, re- ready to uh, accept the asylum seekers and uh, stand in solidarity with her. And uh, you know, the chant we used in Sydney that uh, Carola Libera is a uh, you know comes you know from Italy uh, by no means of Slovenia. Uh, and uh, you know, the, the Italian government's attitude to asylum seekers is it's, it very much is opposed on the ground in Italy. Mm. And what's she been charged with? Oh, it's it's um I don't know, I've forgotten the exact uh, the exact uh, charge. It is it is uh, it's an immig- it's an immigration charge. Um, and although she's uh, still in uh, she's still in Italy, I mean, Salvini's actually called for her you know to be removed. And while she's no longer under house arrest, uh, she still is you know charged and will be mm. um, you know taken before the courts. So I've just forgotten the exact. And she's she's been charged. So like you said, with the illegal immigration. Um, and sort of in in some terms, in quote marks, uh, people smuggling. Um, but she's also been charged with violence against a military warship. Oh, has she? Okay. Look, I, I wasn't I wasn't sure about that uh, about that charge or the, whether that still that still stood. But yeah, I mean, it was a ridiculous, um, you know. You know, proposition uh, because that's the the navy uh, put their boats in the yeah. way of the you know, in the way of the sea watch. Uh, but you know, as we as we've seen here in Australia, I mean, the the government reaches for every uh, bit of um, mm-hmm. you know, law that they can use against the you know, people who are trying to bring you know, asylum boats to to well to Italy in the, in this case. Yeah, and and when um when a when a boat like this docks, what happens to re- the refugees on board? What what's the next hours or days? What does, it, what does that look like for those refugees? Um, well, look, in, in most of them, they, they do find um, you know assistance. We don't we don't have uh, you know detention centres in in Italy the way we the way we have them uh, in you know in Australia. So there are you know NGOs that. Um, accept the refugees and process them. There's often a bit of a, an argument. Sometimes there is. Uh, there has been an attempt uh, by the Italian government, in particular, to hold people and return, uh, you know, people, you know, to Italy. Uh, but mostly, people end up, you know, getting, uh, you know, getting assistance uh, by, you know, NGOs in Italy. Yeah. And as we said before, it's um, Salvini has called her a pirate and a criminal and it has completely divided Italy um, and many places. Um, have you got any advice for people who are listening to this who, who might want to get involved more with a, um, and help somebody like Carola Rocchetti get back onto the, to the sea and the sea watch? 
Well, look, that, I think the, the Italian government, I think, is very susceptible uh, to, you know, to pressure at the moment. Um, we had a small demonstration in, you know, in Sydney, but the, they got quite a lot of coverage in the Italian media, certainly here. It got referenced uh, in some of the international media in, in Italy itself. Uh, so I think anything that people can do, whether it's through their, you know, their student union, you know, their trade union, their refugee organisation, mm. uh, to uh, carry motions to support, you know, for Carola and condemn the, you know, Salvini, make sure those messages get through, you know, to the uh, Italian embassy, the consulates in your, uh, in your city. And obviously we have a, you know, there's a fight uh, in Australia. We've just had big demonstrations over the weekend, um, you know, for, uh, you know, freedom for asylum seekers against the Australian policy, which, you know, Salvini quite consciously uses and talks very deliberately about the Australian model and implementing the Australian model in Italy and the Mediterranean. So mm. the fight in Australia to end the Australian solution, I think, is uh, part of developing international solidarity for, you know, people who want to open the borders uh, around Australia or around the, the Mediterranean. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much, Ian, for coming on and talking to us today um, Yeah, about the recent event with Captain Carola Rocchetti. Um, yeah, and we would love to have you back again. No worries. Yeah, thanks very much. Thank you so much, thanks, Ian. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Bye. So you're listening to 3CR, and we've been talking to Ian Rintel from the Refugee Action Coalition in Sydney about the sea captain Carella Rocchetti, who is facing jail time for saving refugees in Italy. Um, again, and also she, I know that she's had she's been presented with a fine, or Sea Watch has been presented with a fine, and they've quite quickly activists have um, have already gathered that money together. So the fine isn't so much of an issue for them at the moment, but it's really about. Um, seeing what will happen to the crew and to Carella in the next sort of couple of months and hoping that she can get back on the sea as soon as possible to continue her work. It's time now to listen to some Kev Carmody before our next guest. I've been moved by the wind upon the waters and the shadows as the leaves That's a bit of Kev comedy with I've Been Moved. It's time now to yeah, get to our next guest, uh, February 2007, sorry, February 7th, 2009, um, is the date of the Black Saturday bushfires, which affected areas around the north of Melbourne, including King Lake and many other communities. It has been well over 10 years now since those um, dreadful fires went through that area. Um, more recently, there was a meeting on Thursday the 17th of July, which followed two weeks of community protest after Vic Forest's ignored concerns raised with them by the community members and local groups to stop them from logging the um, sorry, logging in Exton's Road, King Lake for the safety of the community. So to tell us a little bit more about why the community is angered by this and why Vic Forest insists on going ahead with the logging, we are joined by 
the environment group King Lake Friends of the Forest and they're being represented by Sue McKinnon. Good morning, Sue. Yeah, hi, Dean. I hope I did that introduction some some justice there. Can you tell us a, a little bit about, I guess, why logging in the area is a bad idea, essentially? Yes, so the research has, has shown quite conclusively that young regrowth forests, which occurs after any disturbance and particularly after logging, uh, has an increased fire risk of fire, an increased risk of that fire being a canopy burn and high, and fires in regrowth forests burn with higher intensity and speed. So this is, um, this has been proven by research all over Victoria and Australia and internationally. And, and I mean, Vic Forest had said that they recognise that there are issues around fire and they agree in certain stages of regrowth the fire risk is increased, but they're still pushing ahead with the idea of locking that forest. Yeah, so they they acknowledged that that uh, that it's that, that logging increases fire risk mm. at certain stages of regrowth, and the research shows that those certain stages continue for decades. Yeah. So this is this is this this problem, this increased fire threat, is going to live with the King Lake community for decades to come, and there's nothing that we can do about it once they've logged. And, I mean, I've been through there more recently, and as I mentioned, it has been 10 years since the 2009 fires. There are certain pockets there on that sort of, I think it's Heidelberg King Lake Road, where the trees have obviously re- regrown, but then some of them are still hollow stumps, really, which are, you know, quite tall. So are they trying to log those, or are they trying to log even the ones that have regrown? What, what What's their... The plan up there. They're, what they're logging is the the areas of forest that, that burnt with less intensity during okay. the, the 2009 fires. So mm. this particular area burnt at 11:30 at night, so it was a, a little bit cooler, and it was incredible because the trees in this area survived and, and just shot again. And you, you would hardly know that this area has been through a devastating fire. Um, in fact, this area of fires survived. As forest has survived three major fires, it's a it's a pretty uh, resilient bit of forest, and um, and so that's the area that Big Forest is targeting. They want those big established trees, and it, this area is surrounded by fire damaged landscape that's mm. been completely destroyed by fire, with, and and just had to regrow again from uh, yeah, from germination. And, and, you know, there's some lovely 100-year-old habitat trees around there in that area as well. So, but what, what, I know you had another community meeting. I think you met with them on Friday, uh, Vic Forests again. What, what will they be doing with the trees? Are they logging it for, just to remove them? Because as, as you, um, have mentioned, there's been an overwhelming amount of support from around the area with, with concerned residents joining you know, that vigil and making sure that there is an understanding that the more there is a cleared area, the forest will dry up and obviously wind impact on the trees and the neighbouring properties will lead to to uh, maybe severe fire. Yeah, well, they, they, they the reason they're logging is... Uh, 81, they've told us that in their own documents that 81% of the wood they're taking out of this forest is going directly to the paper mill. 
So they have a contract to fill in the paper mill. Mm -hmm. This is uh, nothing uh, good comes from this for the community or from Victorian taxpayers. It's just lose-lose for us. Um, They said that this is just a small area, but it's right beside uh, where people... Right beside property. Mm. Mm. It's just so close to the King Lake School the King Lake community. Uh, it's a major recreational area for trail bike riders and horse riders and bird lovers. So, you know, it, 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 and it's only, it's one area, but it's, it's one area on top of all the other areas that they log. So the cumulative effect of this logging and the increase in fire risk and the loss to our forest is, is vast. And what other areas have they logged around there, Sue? And sorry, I think I made a mistake. You met with Environment Victoria on Friday, not Vic Forest. Is that correct? We met with Vic Forest on. Oh, we met with with the Department of Environment on Friday. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and what was what what was there sort of? I mean, obviously you were there to present your case. What were there? What was some of their outtakes from that meeting? Well, they they don't they they are refusing to uh, to regulate the forestry code. So the only way we can control uh, Vic Forest and, and logging is through the forestry code that's written for that specific reason. And the clause in there, in the code, is, is about a precautionary principle. Mm. So um, there are gliders, a threatened species in this area, and those gliders, the, the, the environmental harm... Uh, is irreversible once those gliders have uh, become locally extinct because there's no there's no other area that the gliders are living in. This is it's it's surrounded by fire damaged landscape. It's surrounded by uh, half surrounded by private cleared private property. So the logging in the, these areas will cause local extinction of a threatened species. That's serious and irreversible environmental damage. And that is not allowed under the code. And, and, so, the, and Del- the Department of Environment refused to regulate that clause. Mm, mm. And I think this is where the community feels like they're being let down by the government and by the department because from what it sounds like, there is obviously something in place for this paper mill to be able to get some, some wood from somewhere and your area is uh, being chosen to be the spot where the wood's going to come from regardless of, you know, all the science and, and, the, and, and that provides evidence that logging increases the risk of future fire severity and even them recognising that there are issues around fire. Well, the, the wood shouldn't be coming from any of our native forests, mm. Victoria. The, the pulp mill has its own plantation, uh, plantations uh, that, that they, they can use for uh, their production of paper, but they choose to export uh, wood chips from their own plantations uh, and take our native forest. It's, a, it's a, perhaps a better deal for them. Mm. Uh, you know, they, they grow, they, they manufacture paper from plantation wood and from recycled pulp. And so how, how can we down here in, I guess, you know, in Collingwood, Melbourne, and the rest of the Victorian population and our listeners help, you know, King Lake Friends of the Forest in terms of being able to, I guess, um, rally and, and help you against Vic Forest? Well, 
Oh, well, we have a rally at 2.30 today at the corner of Exton's Road and Whittlesea King Lake Road. We'd really welcome people to come up here and support us. Or if you just want to know a little bit more about the issue, uh, come and talk to us. Mm. You're logging just down the road and, uh, and it's, it's one of the places that you can actually get close enough to view the logging. It's, it's staggeringly close <laughs> to everything and to Melbourne. It's only 60 kilometres away from Melbourne. Yeah, it's a, nice, it's a nice 40-minute drive, and it is quite yeah. lovely up there. Yeah. Um, and, and you have had, over the past seven months, obviously this has been going on, and if people would like to get up there to, to support um, King Lake Friends of the Forest, please get up there. Yeah. Uh, Sue, I really appreciate you joining us on 3CR, and what we'll do is um, hopefully touch base in another month or so, if that's okay with you, just to get a bit of a follow-up. Sure, Dean, and if anyone wants to keep in touch through the Facebook, King Lake Friends of the Forest. Excellent. Thank you, Sue, and um, thank the other ladies for me as well. Have a good morning. Absolutely. Thanks, Dean. And that was Sue McKinnon from Kinlake Friends of the Forest, uh, and they've got a little rally today too up on Exton's Road in Kinglake. And I guess, um, you know, there's some scientific evidence there, you know, talking about increasing density of mid-storey vegetation and how that results in greater fire fuel as a hazard. So you can, um, yeah, look at their Facebook page at uh, King Lake Friends of the Forest and you'll get some more information. This is our country. We've never forgotten where we've come from. Or who we are. We keep our culture strong. Now it's time to come together. Talk as equals. And write our own future. This is our country and this is our time. Treaty, it's time. Enroll now for the First People's Assembly of Victoria election. Authorised by the Victorian Treaty Advancement Commission, Melbourne. Three songs for 3CR on August 3rd bring solos, duos, trios and five choirs to raise funds for Music South Frontier. The Oratory, Abbotsford Convent, 7.30pm, Saturday, August 3rd. Tickets at the door or go to www.boite.com.au. The Boite is a 3CR supporter. You're on 855 AM 3CR. What a Show. What a jam-packed show. <laughs> we started with Jack Vernon's talking about public housing. Uh, he works with Friends of Public Housing, and that was during his... Uh, there was a conference that he was at. I forgot mm-hmm. what it was called. Um, Fair Go for Pensioners Conference, which was on the 10th of July. And then at 7.30, we had Donna Bennett, the CEO of Hope Street. You can go to hopest.org. And they need some funding for the Whittlesea First Response, which is a youth service that is hope that is um, being planned for the future. And then we spoke to Tamara Tobakovic, who um, spoke to us about the EU asylum politics and decision making, and especially um, the refugee crisis in quote marks that happened in 2015 in the EU. Um, and then after that, eight o'clock, we spoke to Ian Rintle from the Refugee Action Coalition in Sydney about the case of Captain Kerala Ricchetti um, and her potential potentially facing jail time for saving refugees in Italy. 
And we also just spoke to King Lake Friends of the Forest who have a rally today at 2 o'clock on Exton's Road, King Lake. And they, uh, she was from King Lake Friends of the Forest, which is an environment group lobbying to keep King Lake safe and asking Vic Forest to stop for logging um, and for a safer community. We'll be back again next week and our Zen master will be back <laughs> after her two-week retreat of doing... Of doing pure meditation and Zen. <laughs> no, we don't know. But pure yes, meditation Judith will be back next zen. week. Um, and we've got Women on the Line coming up next and we've also had Beyond Zero Emissions Before Show and you can always tune in, as usual, anytime on 855 AM 3CR. We're back next week. 3CR relies on the support of ethical organisations to keep our vital community of voices on air. And we'd like to thank our breakfast supporters, the new international bookshop, Nibs, at Trades Hall. You can check them out at nibs.org.au. And if you'd like more information on how your organisation can become a 3CR supporter, contact the station on 03 9419 8377.